Hi, this is Jeff Britton, and you're listening to the Beatles Yesterday and Today podcast. The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. The show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and today. Welcome back to the Yesterday and Today podcast. Oh, we have a special one today. We have so many surprises in store. I'm really excited to get into it here, but first I'll introduce myself. My name's Paul Kaminsky. I'm the silent one, James Kaminsky. And hi, this is Wayne Kaminsky. Dad, you're the cute one. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And we are here today to celebrate 100 episodes that's right 100 american episodes of this show about an english band i feel so old oh (laughs) not those canadian episodes that are the yesterday and today podcast has reached episode 100 we're very very excited we decided to make this episode a special one we're going to do things a little bit differently so if you were coming here prepared to hear all about side two of extra texture eh, sorry about that whoopsie it'll be back (laughs) next time This is just a little bit of extra, extra texture to your podcast listening experience. This is the additional texture. Yeah. So we're going to talk a little bit about how the yes. Yes, a little bit about texture. Thank you, Dad. We're going to (laughs) talk a little bit about how the Yesterday and Today project came to be. Now, I know 
for those of you keeping score out there, and I know I know who you are. <laughs> wow. We yeah. did talk a little bit about this in episode one, so don't add us. But we're going to talk a little more detail about how the show came to be, and then James and I are going to interview our beloved father, the founder of the Yesterday Feast, da- Dad, Daddy-O. First, I have to correct you. Episode one really is episode 15. Well, Lord knows how many episodes it'll actually be, and we'll get into why. We'll get into why when we talk about how the project came to be. So then we're, we're, so we're going to interview you. Then we have a fun game that I wanted to play with you guys called Unpopular uh, Beetle Opinions, which we'll get to those in a moment. And then we're going to share some Beetle memories. And then even more special than all of that. All of that was very special. This is just a lot of specialness happening here. But the even more special, we have listeners like you. I know who you are. And some special guests to come on the show and share their favorite Beatle memories because this show looks back at all kinds of beetle things and a lot of our listeners have their own special memories about listening to albums or seeing shows or you know whatever interacting with friends and family as it pertains to beetle music and we also have some surprise guests some surprises that i did not tell dad about ah! and so dad i'm just gonna surprise me i'm gonna divvy those out as we go but we're gonna start in here with our first section. So we're going to talk a little bit about how yesterday and today came to be. Dad, I was wondering if you could tell me when specifically you had this idea and do you remember like first starting to put a show together and what that was like? It was all in a fog, man. I had a lot of drugs. The year was what, 1998, (laughs) seven? Actually, the year uh, I started this was 1995. Whoa. And... It was during the anthology, and I've had the idea, actually, before then, but to be placing it on a computer and placing it on a CD is around 1995. That is way earlier than I thought it was. I actually started on cassette tapes and 8-tracks way, way back when. But yeah, I mean, really what happened was, is I was doing a long commute, as I mentioned in episode 15, (laughs) and... um, In the long commute, I wanted to listen to things that I liked, and I got tired and bored of the radio stations and talk radio and AM and FM radio. FM was going downhill at the time, so I wanted to listen to my stuff, and after I listened to the five other CDs I had, I wanted to put on Beatles. So in order for me to listen to the Beatles, I wanted to hear them in order. So I used to listen to the records in order on CD or on cassette in the car. So I started to record those on the computer and put them in my car as as you would make uh, playlists. And with those playlists, I decided to put in audio. So then with the <laughs> audio, you know, there was all these specials out, which I used in this special, like the Beatles story and a few others from WPLJ and other areas of Beatles stories and histories that I just started putting them in. And it was a lot of fun. And then all of a sudden I thought, hmm, I'm going to use all the material that I have in my Beatle collection and make CD cases for these things. (laughs) (laughs) You made a case out of a Beatle wig. It was horrifying. (laughs) (laughs) So every case had a different photograph that pertained to that episode. And all the articles that I had, then I started reading the articles saying, wow, I should have entered this in. So then I started remaking those episodes and putting various 
different news articles in that I read that I remembered from the time. I'd like to interject here. I think I remember the first time you added your voice to the special. And let's mm. see if I got let's see if I get this right. I think it was to read an article about Savoy Truffle where you read about the Good News Assortment's candies because you couldn't find any audio interviews talking about it at that time, and so you read it. Is that right? Am I right about that? That is correct. You win an imaginary prize. Ding, ding, ding. I got it. (laughs) I did it. George's last song on the album is about the problems of Eric Clapton. During the 60s, Eric had a lot of cavities in his teeth and needed dental work. He always had a toothache, but he still ate a lot of chocolates. He couldn't resist them. And George was warning him that one more of these soft-centered chocolates and he'd have to have his teeth pulled. He was over at George's one day, and George had a box of chocolates on a table. They were a box of Macintosh's Good News assortments. In constructing the lyrics to the song, Harrison got stuck for something to sing in the middle eight. Apple press officer Derek Taylor helped with this middle eight by suggesting the title of a film he had just seen called You Are What You Eat, which was made by two American friends, Alan Pariser and Barry Feinstein. Alan was associated with Derek during the Monterey Pop Festival of 1967. And for the many colorful names in the song lyrics, Eric was eating the many exotically named treats such as Cream Tangerine, Montelli Mar, Ginger Sling, Savoy Truffle, and Coffee Dessert. Cherry Cream and Coconut Fudge was invented to fit the song. So as Eric ate one by one, George wrote the names into this song. That used to actually be in some of our trivia things that we used to do when we used to travel. What was the first episode that I put my voice in, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah <it was laughs> well, no, I remember. <laughs> I tell you why I remember that because I remember thinking, oh, dad is talking when these other radio people are talking. And it felt very real that you were a part of it. And you got to understand, we're talking the late 90s, early 2000s here. People weren't doing what you were doing, at least not on an amateur level. Like people, professionals were doing that, but people weren't Mm. doing this. So dad, you are, I mean, an innovator, I would say in that regard. And I just would like to take this moment to acknowledge that and give you the credit you deserve for it. Cause it, it's a cool thing that you actually were able to reach into your collection and synthesize it and become a part of it and make a thing out of it. It's kind of remarkable. It's like a Twilight Zone episode. Um, (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I mean... I say as you are literally surrounded by collectibles right now. People can't see this. I mean, it's also literally a Twilight Zone episode in that you became the Rod Serling to this massive collection of oddities that you had in this audio form. Well, it was funny because most of the material that I was using is I, I was using it from my VHS tapes or 8-track tapes. That's right. So I would be playing them on that media and putting them into a computer. Now, 
it helped that I was in the computer business, so right. <laughs> I was able to have a one-speed drive and burn it all. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you had a CD burner before a lot of people. I remember you had a CD burner and a scanner before most any of my <laughs> friends had them. And yeah. so, so let's talk a little bit about those original CD iterations. So mm. you were making them you know, to be burned onto a CD, and then you'd put stickers on all of the... You had designs for the stickers on all the CDs, and you you didn't have booklets to start, but you had a front and a back cover and an inside cover. Right, right. Uh, front and back cover. The printer I used was primarily a inkjet printer at that time, and then I graduated to a solid ink. But yeah, I mean, I had to wait for Avery to come up with a label. <laughs> <laughs> because I was cutting things, cutting stickers and putting them on the uh, CDs at first. You were uh, that then, ahead of your time. I guess. <laughs> but then uh, I started making little labels. And it wasn't just a label from an Apple, say, that you would, uh, the Beatles Apple. I would actually buy, go to the grocery store, buy <laughs> Granny Smith apples, Macintosh apples, and every year of this oh, episode no. had a no. different episode, and I took the photograph of it, cropped it, and put it onto the Apple label, my own Apple label. That <laughs> and then I would is so, wild. This part two, I would slice the apple in half. <laughs> I had no idea you were doing that with our apples. Oh, just take a look at the apples. <laughs> you could have fed your family with those. It didn't, no, I, I had no idea. I, all these years, I never knew that. Yeah, he did, and they were slathered in toner, and <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. And so, well, you did a run straight through. So you started mm. in when the Beatles were born, right? And then you went right. all the way up, I think, until the '80s or the mid '80s before you started going back and redoing them. But I just want to talk about that original one because we do get a lot of questions about why we started in '65, and mm. the reason we started in '65 is because those very early episodes you never went back and redid the CDs for. So actually there's a lot of weird mistakes and things I recall in episode one. And they're not from you. They're from the radio hosts who, that you were using as the backbone of the special. And I remember, right. I remember the one guy says, it says Paul's real name is John Paul McCartney. And I remember thinking like, this guy's an idiot. He's an idiot, man, <laughs> but it's on, it's on the CD. So, that is the reason, folks, why we haven't gone back and done those yet is because we're dead had to pick a starting spot. And we, and I think the answer is why you picked 65 is because that was an important year to you, right? That's correct. I have been or have redone a lot of those episodes. But what I wanted to do is concentrate more on the music of the early 50s and lead that right into the Beatles in Germany and things like that, rather than to uh, start at that time. Because let's face it, most people, you know, when you think of the Beatles, you think, what, what's a fun year of the Beatles? 65, help. You know, I mean, for any Beatle fanatic, in my opinion, 65 would probably be the start. Yeah, everybody remembers Beatlemania. But in a lot of ways, it's just a lot of screaming. And do you really want to start hearing, you know, the early days and the cavern and things? Or do you want to just start in the fun era, right in the yeah. middle? <laughs> so I cut to the chase and went right to the fun. <laughs> That's right. When they were, because most people, like you said, would point to 64. But I think 65 is when the music really starts to graduate. 
because 65 gives us yesterday right. it gives us rubber soul it gives us it shows the future of the band in a lot of ways the decline of the touring years and right the last gasp of that original kind of run of the band but we will go back as you said and do those it'll be an F for you yesterday I'm in G but it'll be an F it goes E minor to A seventh to D minor ready okay man <laughs> Yesterday All my troubles seem so far away Now it looks as though they're here to stay Oh, I believe in yesterday Suddenly There's a shadow hanging over me I'm not half the man I used to be Oh, yesterday came suddenly Why she... In talking about redoing the CDs, because that's, again, we're still... We're not thinking about a podcast yet. This is right now still in CD form. Mm -hmm. You started in 65 and then redid... You, like, sort of ping-ponged around a few different years, and then you started making booklets... So tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about the booklets on these CDs. <laughs> well, the booklets were rather fun, only because I had so much stuff growing up that I collected. Articles, photographs, you know, the whole gamut of Beatles memorabilia from the actual time. And I wanted to do something with it. And instead of just putting it in a box and putting it away or looking at one article, you know, as you get older, you don't feel like doing that anymore. And you got jobs and you got kids and everything else. None taken. I thought to myself, wow, I'm going to make it fun. I'm going to use the materials, all the materials, write a little synopsis of that episode and make booklets with photographs and articles that I've collected at that time. So that's why all the CDs have the booklets. Yeah, it was, it was that stuff. It was collectibles. And boy, they were like, what? They were like 20, maybe not 20 pages, but like 10 pages per CD. And then you started making double CDs. And then the thing just, I remember, (laughs) you know, you mentioned episode 15. Well, there's no way to know what the episode starting in 65 would be because you started then expanding the individual CD. So the original episode, let's call it 18, I think was 1968, if I'm recalling correctly. And I Mm -hmm. am. You would do CD 18A, CD 18B. And it would mm-hmm. be the flip side of the different. So the thing just really started expanding and expanding and expanding and growing. Mm-hmm. And we're still not thinking about a podcast yet, but this thing is starting to look really professional. And you've got, we're talking the turn of the 20 teens. Mm-hmm. You got right up to like, what, 1993 or 1992 before the CD part of it sort of stopped, right? 1994, actually. 94, even. Mm-hmm. Ah. Just to reiterate the point about how expansive this got, people would know me for knowing Beatle trivia and would say, how do you know all this? And I'll go, well, my my dad did make a 160-odd CD set uh, (laughs) that kind of chronicles every single living moment of these four men. (laughs) (laughs) Which was quite embarrassing. (laughs) What did you find so compelling about them, Dad? 
Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it must have been their trousers. There you go. That was a, that's what we call a setup in the biz. So it's around 2016, and I had moved out to California by that point. And Dad, you were in the process of getting ready to go to Florida, and the uh, those wedding bells were breaking up that old gang of ours. And what I think I remember calling you and saying because James and I had started the Third Men podcast which is a show about Jack White history that you should all check out, plug, plug, plug. And we talked about, hey, let's make this thing into a podcast, this Yesterday and Today project. And the reason why I wanted to start that conversation is because I listen to a lot of Beatles podcasts. And what I quickly found out was no one was doing what you were doing. And I think to this day, no one is doing what you were doing. You basically made cereal, but before the cereal person, people, the cereal people. <laughs> and it's not even just cereal. It's like cereal mixed with anthology and... Blueberries. <laughs> Nobody... Captain Crunch. I, I just, I was like, I know, I, it's going to sound like bragging because I'm on the show right now, but I, I, it's not that because dad made it. No one is doing what you're doing. No one has done this. That's amazing. Yeah, have, have you ever thought not. about that? Uh, no, I just did it because it was fun. Um, there's a lot of good podcasts out there, you know, I listen to. And, you know, they're a lot of fun. And, you know, I thought, you know, yeah, maybe Paul is right. Put it out. Put it out there. <laughs> and then, yeah, we're here 100 episodes later. And your show has left James and I long in the dust uh, the Yesterday and Today podcast just runs rings around us in downloads. And we are so grateful to our audience, which is in the you know thousands of people all over the world listen to this mm. show. And we, I mean, we want to really thank everybody for the support because we're doing this in our free time and amateurs and even getting the word out there is tough mm-hmm. uh, to do. But there's been some fun stories we've heard from different listeners who, Dad, you you have a favorite one, right, about the trucker? Do you want to tell? Oh, right, yeah. Received an email or an instant message from someone who drove his truck throughout Europe. And he said that he enjoys the podcast and he listens when he goes, you know, on his route. And I thought to myself, wow, that is interesting. Somebody's actually listening to my voice somewhere out in Edinburgh. (laughs) (laughs) It's so cool. It touched me to a point where I thought, I'm happy people enjoy it. I really am. Because it's fun for me to do. It's something I always wanted to do, even in the earlier days, you know, when technology and the internet came along. Because don't forget, I was doing this probably before the internet, because I was just... I, well, it had to be sort of infancy yeah. of the internet, but I never was getting anything from the internet, but now you can get almost anything. But a lot of the material that I used was from actual sources that I actually recorded. Yeah. <laughs> and if and if my home didn't burn down in a fire, I probably would have had all the stuff from 65 and 66 on that I had recorded with my brothers from a reel-to-reel tape recorder wow. held up to the televisions and radios. The, you know, WABC was a 
big radio station of mine to listen to. But yeah, I recorded all that stuff. So along with a massive letter writing campaign to Avery to get CD labels, you also had a massive letter writing <laughs> campaign to MIT to create the internet. Uh, you yes. heard it here first. <laughs> Thank you, MIT. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, and well, you're going to, not to spoil anything for the upcoming year, but Dad, you always work in advance of when people listen to these. So right now, hmm. I am listening to part six of 1976. As we mentioned, there are CDs up through 1994, but the the current remastering process for the podcast is in 76, and we can hear some of your recordings from the radio the night after you saw Paul McCartney and Wings mm. at Madison Square Garden, and I just thought that was so cool, because who was saving that stuff? No one's... <laughs> I don't even think the radio station saved that stuff. Amazing that you have that. Yeah, there... there it- it was an interesting time to uh, go into shows, as probably some of the listeners will remember, because there are people out there that have recorded, like I did, on Super 8 movies, the concerts. Not being a stalker, but being a fan, I seen Wings every time it was in the tri-state area, or every show that was in the tri-state area, shall I say. And George Harrison, you know, all those folks. It was interesting. You can bring in movie cameras, tape recorders, spotlights as we found out we could bring in uh, <laughs> you could probably bring in a whole camera crew and no one said a word yeah it was really some interesting times and unfortunately people did bring in fireworks and bottle rockets during some of those shows as we'll hear <laughs> yeah the 76 special is turning out so great and we do hear a bunch of those stories i just wanted to you know, before we wrap up here and move on to the next segment, I was wondering if you can tell people a little bit about, let's call it the remastering process for the special for podcasts. So you use the original CD iterations as sort of a guide and then expand out from there to elaborate for the podcast. Is that right? Do you want to tell people right. a little bit how, about your process in, in remastering an episode? Sure. I load all the year that I had made in, uh, from a CD into the computer, and then I separate all the tracks out. Then I separate all the news articles and voices and other material and just assign it a month and a year and a date and then look for more information regarding that time and add to it. And obviously the uh, audio has gotten better since then. (laughs) And then I assemble the whole thing. So, I mean, it's just... A lot. Dissect it. It's dissecting the CDs per year, and then reassembling it into a more coherent form. Which is something I always wanted to do anyway. Even after I finished with it, I was like Walt Disney. I was like, no, this will never be finished, <laughs> and I got to redo it. <laughs> well, I imagine when you hear interviews, you hear things that reference earlier years, and you're like, ah, you know, like, I wish. Oh, I absolutely. That. Yeah. yeah. Um, matter of fact, there's been many of those that I edited out and uh, redid. So there is an example that uh, Ooh. I'd like to share. Ooh. All right. So you want to tell us a little bit about this? You sent me the audio here, but we're gonna mm-hmm. we're gonna listen to an early version and then a remastered version. Is that right? Right. It's it's about forty or fifty seconds long for each, so it's not a lot, but it just gives you an idea of what it was sounding like as far as the CD was concerned. Uh, so we'll listen to 1975 
for the first 40 or 50 seconds from the original CD, and then you'll hear 1975 from the podcast version. Wow. We're discussing the original CDs that I made back in the 90s and, and how they really compare to the remastered podcast versions. I think this is a perfect example of that comparison. It's the original version of the beginning of 1975. And then we'll compare it to the new podcast version. It's 1975. A lot of our music, you know, of our popular music is based upon how high you jump and how funny your hat is and what color your shoes are rather than upon, you know, any sort of soul yearning. 1975 was a heavy year for production activity and talent lending, with George Harrison assisting his dark horse group Splinter and promoting the earlier released album Shankar Family and Friends. Paul taking production honors on the music of another hopeful, Mike McGear, who just happens to be McCartney's younger brother. On the 2nd of January, 1975, the U.S. District Court granted Lennon's November request finally allowing him access to INS documents and officials. In January, Eric Clapton tells George Harrison about his close relationship with Patty. Shortly after this, Patty moves out of the Friar Park mansion and takes up residence with Eric at his Hartwood Edge home in Surrey. In January, John records Across the Universe and Fame with David Bowie at the Ladyland Studios in New York City. Okay, now we'll fast forward 20 years to the podcast. It's was a heavy year for production activity and talent lending, with George Harrison assisting his dark horse group Splinter and promoting the earlier released album Shankar Family and Friends. Paul taking production honors on the music of another hopeful, Mike McGear, who just happens to be McCartney's younger brother. Our music, you know, of all popular music is based upon how high you jump and how funny your hat is and what color your shoes are rather than upon, you know, any sort of soul yearning. On Thursday, January 2nd in New York City, in the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York, 
In the case of John Winston Ono Lennon versus the United States of America, the U.S. District Court Judge Richard Owen dismisses the first complaint on the grounds that John had failed to provide any evidence proving that the government had subjected him to illegal surveillance. At the time when it started the immigration, I was being booked, my phone was being booked, and I was being followed around by cars, but this, this is pre-Watergate, and everybody thought I was crazy. We lost the case on that in court, I have to say that. We, we couldn't prove that we were being followed, but it did stop after I went on Dick Cassidy, then everybody vanished. Judge Owen also ruled on the second course of action, alleged that the district director, other officials of the INS, and the immigration judge, prejudged John's applications by routinely denying or not acting upon any such requests other than by exercising each discretionary power as is vested in them. His ruling that John had the right to pursue the notion that his deportation was a conspiracy by the government designed to deny his rights guaranteed by the First, Fourth, Fifth, and Ninth Amendments of the Constitution. Thus, Owen grants Lennon's November request permitting Lennon and his attorney, Leon Wilds, access to the U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Services files that deal with John's ongoing deportation case. Lennon is permitted to question the INS officials as well. Owen requested that the parties appear before him on January 9, 1975 at 4.30 p.m. to establish the extent of the initial discovery to be allowed. The U.S. District Court granted Lennon's November request, finally allowing him access to INS documents and officials.
Very cool. So we're going to move on to another segment here, but the one last question I wanted to ask you, Dad, is has there been any surprises, any notable surprises along the way in compiling the research for this show that, you know, even as an avid fan, maybe you weren't expecting to hear? Oh, there's been so many, so many different stories and surprises. I know you asked me that a while back, and I was trying to pinpoint one. I I mean, I have one I, I can, if it'll help, the bit about the reunion show. Okay. Before you mention the reunion show, that was a huge surprise. How much Lennon and McCartney, uh, what their friendship was like, and how many times all four of them thought about getting back together and playing. (laughs) I was amazed because when, you know, when I was younger, I thought, well... There is 74 and there is, you know, the Saturday Night Live. But I didn't realize how they cared to be in each other's company. For example, George Harrison, he goes to the Queen Mary to celebrate Venus and Mars. (laughs) Yeah. John Lennon accepting an invitation to record with Paul in New Orleans on a Venus and Mars track on a Wings song. What a missed opportunity that was. Yeah. In 76, George telling Ringo, if you can get John and Paul together, I'll do it too. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, yeah, that kind of surprise or some of the surprises about coming from Cynthia Lennon about John in his early days and how Mm -hmm. he reacted with Julian coming back from a tour. Yeah. Those type of things were eye-opening. So many of those little things just amazed me personally. I mean, others may have known about it, but I certainly had no clue. Yeah, lots mm. of surprises. I think one of the big ones for me was the George and John schism on the Dark Horse tour mm. on the eve of signing the divorce papers for the Beatles. Mm. I mean, it's my favorite episode of the show because you walk through the whole night and it is devastating that you know george little baby george looking up to big brother john was gonna have lennon on stage with him at madison square garden and then he paul and john were all gonna go back to the hotel and put an end to the beatles with a sense of unity with a sense of almost joy like they're celebrating independence and it was gonna be this kind of beautiful thing and then at the last minute just whether it was cold feet or I know there was tax reasons Lennon didn't want to sign the papers, but there's no tax reason that tells you to abandon your friend on his special night, mm. you know, after doing that throughout their whole lives anyway. And it's just, it's easy to mythologize those four guys and, you know, none of them are perfect. And obviously Lennon had his shortcomings and they are human, but boy, that dynamic there was devastating to hear but also illuminating and and george forgiving him right away was really interesting and well not right away but yeah it took a while (laughs) shortly thereafter yeah but i think lennon was just scared yeah yeah i mean that was his band yeah and that's his motivation to a lot of the kind of what people think is pettiness and rudeness and stuff is he's he's got a lot of fear yeah and he's constantly deflecting it into humor or other things like that so yeah, you can you can definitely see a lot of that listening to your special. You kind of get a, a feeling for how... You, obviously, you can't get a look into the guy's brain, but, you know, you can kind of understand why a lot of decisions were made the way they were made. 
and uh, you know even hearing how each band member received the other individual band members uh, solo albums and hearing how Lennon talked about Ram and how you know McCartney talked about Dark Horse and all these other you know you get interesting little tidbits of how this group that had split you know is still dealing with the split even you know in the public eye it's it's interesting illuminating stuff Mm -hmm. I agree yeah so we're going to move on to another segment here, but before we do, we're going to head to an, what I'm calling an intermission, where we're going to hear some Beatle memories from some of our listeners and some special guests. And the first special guest that I would like to introduce to all of you, and I have not talked to Dad about this, the first special guest that I'd like to introduce is Zach Nilsson, Harry Nilsson's son, Wow, who will be contributing a Beatle memory. As we know, Harry has been a big player in the story of the Beatles, particularly post-breakup. And so without further ado, I'm going to throw it to Zach, and then we're going to hear from some listeners. Nice. Wow. That's awesome. Really, really cool. End of part one. Intermission. Hi, my name is Zach Nilsson. Uh, my dad was Harry Nilsson, uh, one of the friends of the Beatles, and this is a story about a close encounter with a Beatle. Uh, in the year 1991, um, my dad Harry had been commissioned to do a song for the movie called The Fisher King, which was uh, created by Terry Gilliam. And um, He flew to London to record at Abbey Road Studios. The song was, uh, I like New York in June, how about you? And I asked if I could go with him, and he said yes. So I flew to London, and I got to be there in the studio with him when he recorded this, and it was amazing. And it was great, and and we were in London together for about a week and a half. And uh, after a couple days of recording, uh, we had a day off, and... We had a car out front, and uh, Harry told me, come on, let's go. I asked him where we were were going, and he just said, you know, it's a surprise, so let's go. So I got in the car, and uh, we drove out into the country in England, and uh, I didn't really have any idea where we were, and we showed up at this uh, big estate, and there was a security guard who let us in, and we drove in and we got out and there was just there's this huge monastery and then just gardens and gardens and so much so many gardens and the first thing i saw was george harrison power walking through his gardens and he was just having the time of his life with a big smile on his face just power walking through the gardens and he saw us and came up to us and He and my dad hugged, and I was introduced to George, and we all went inside this giant monastery. And the first thing I saw when we went inside the monastery was uh, the front room, the foyer, was just loaded from top to bottom with guitar cases, all types of guitars, regular guitars and banjos, and pretty much any type of stringed instrument was there. George just walked up and picked one out. It was a ukulele, and he just started playing it and noodling on it because I guess that's just what George does. <laughs> and we uh, we talked a little bit, uh, just about nothing, just about regular stuff, just about friend stuff. And I realized that we were the only people there 
um, aside from George's family, uh, Olivia was there and Danny was there. And it was me and my dad, Harry, and that was it. It was just the five of us in this giant monastery. It was a very intimate setting. It, it, you, when you think of meeting George Harrison, you think of, you know, conventions or, or, or public appearances or just seeing him on the street or something like that. It's very different when you're in his house with his family and no one else. You know what I mean? Uh, it was it was very different. I, I got to know him a little bit uh, as a person and as a friend of my dad's. They were just friends. They were just talking about nothing like friends do. And so... George was kind enough to give us a tour of his house. And we went through all the various rooms and, and we went upstairs and into his studio that he had built in the house. And the studio is amazing. And he told us they'd recorded a number of the Traveling Wilbury albums there. And uh, he'd had all kinds of people in there to record. And it's, he'd recorded a bunch of his own stuff there. And as we talked and, and looked through the studio, I, I noticed on the far wall... It was loaded with guitars. There were just guitars up, you know, like nine guitars high on this wall and all the way across. And there were so many guitars and I was looking at them and I realized these were George Harrison's guitars. And when I say that, you probably know what I mean. They were his Beatles guitars. They were his Traveling Wilbury guitars. There was a guitar that Jimi Hendrix gave him, guitar that Eric Clapton gave him. You know, there's a guitar he played on Ed Sullivan. It, you know, it's George Harrison's guitars. So <laughs> you're looking at those and you're like, <laughs> there's a break in reality. You're like, where, where am I? What's happening? What am I looking at? This is, it's, it's, it was a little bit crazy. Uh, but George made it all seem very normal. George was a very normal person when he's outside of the public eye, when you're just talking with him as a human being as a friend, as a person when there's no pressure to perform or to be a Beatle or to be George Harrison, you know it was just he's just a guy and he's just a friend of my dad's and they'd known each other for decades and they just it was a very odd experience but at the same time it was very comforting to know that they had this relationship that was just so comfortable and I was just, you know, with my mouth open looking at all the guitars and we went back downstairs, and uh, Harry and George wanted to talk in the kitchen. So I went upstairs and met Danny. And I was in Danny's room, and at the time, I'm sorry, I don't know exactly how old he was, but I, I think he was like nine or ten years old or something like that. And I was a bit older. I was, I was in my 20s at that point, or almost 20s. And we just, we talked a little bit, and I got to know him a little bit, and it was really nice. And then a little bit later, we, we went down into the kitchen and we had lunch. And uh, we just had some, some nice sandwiches and, and tea. And, and it was just the five of us. And it was Olivia and George and Danny and me and Harry. And man, they were lovely. They were lovely people. And I, I look back on that experience very fondly because I, I just... I enjoyed myself, not just because it was George Harrison, because of course, obviously, you know, you're going to enjoy meeting George Harrison in a setting like that, but just because it was so nice to learn just what sort of wonderful people they were and it, how, how nice it was to just hang out with them and my dad. And it was just a great afternoon and it was really nice. And I think back on that day a lot. Um, 
after everyone's gone. You know, George is gone and my dad is gone now. And I, I just, I think back on, on that day and I wish I could do it again, but I'm glad that I was able to do it once. It was an experience that I recognized that most people never had, never will have. It was, it was incredible. And I, I wouldn't have exchanged it for anything. And that's my story of meeting a beetle. Thanks for listening. five years old, I remember listening to many albums on my mom and dad's stereo. One of them was the Beatles album, Hey Jude. When I got older and began to really get an interest in the Beatles after John Lennon passed away, I went back and listened to that album again. And I thought, wow, I listened to all these wonderful songs way back when I was very small. And here I am now, enjoying them as a young adult. It was awesome. My mom and dad and I went to see Beatlemania when I was a freshman in high school. And I will always remember my father and myself and my mom, we were all standing up when the Beatlemania participants, the the people that played them, were playing Hey Jude. And I remember my dad just standing there and clapping his hands and singing. And I thought, that's what it's all about. My name is Eli. I'm living in Iceland. Uh, my fondest memory of the Beatles is I was 13 years old in 1995 and the anthology episodes were on TV. That weekend, well, when I watched those three episodes, it changed my whole life. Now I've been a Beatle maniac since. And I watched, uh, listened to uh, all the 99 episodes so far of the Estate Today podcast and it's my favorite podcast. I've listened to a lot of Beatle, Beatle podcasts and it's excellent. I love it. Thank you. Keep up the good work. Friend of the show, Ryan Brady, is here, and he's going to share one of his Hello. favorite Beatle memories with us as well in honor of our 100th episode of Yesterday and Today. Ryan, noted Beatle fan. <laughs> <laughs> Noted fan. <laughs> Noted fanatic. Why, why don't we say Beatles historian? I think that's... No, I'm not a Beatles historian. If anything, I'm a guy with a slight mental problem <laughs> that really likes this music. <laughs> what? No, no, congratulations on the 
hundredth episode that's huge that's the threshold for podcasts that's that's unbelievable first and foremost thank you thank you so you're going to share with us today a beetle memory we're all sharing our favorite beetly memories you know i have a bunch ryan if you're feeling particularly exposed at the moment i can give you a brief one when i heard abbey road for the first time in headphones blew my mind i was 14 years old 15 yeah and i had of course heard the album many times before but the day I sat with it and really listened to it, really with it, with yeah. a teenager brain for the first time, was mind-blowing to me. And that's the thing I love about Beatle music is that you catch it at different points in your life. You can appreciate Octopus's Garden as a kid and then trip out to I Want You, She's So Heavy when you're 14, 15. And it keeps giving at every stage of your life, you know? Mm-hmm. It's what I love about this podcast is we tour through the Beatles' lives, but we're actually touring through the fans' lives, too. So well, that's one of mine. I'm going to share with you at the top here. That's really nice. And as, and as for Octopus's Garden, as in my 30s, it's better somehow than it was <laughs> when I, as a teenager. So, well, all of Ringo, I would love to just hear the seafood-only Ringo Starr album. <laughs> <laughs> nautical and tropical themed. My Beatles story. I remember one of my best friends, his name is Max Phillips, handing me headphones on a bus trip in grade school. Maybe it was middle school. Probably middle school. Yeah, it would have been middle school. I believe we're going to the capital of Illinois. One of those trips. Yeah. And... He's like, listen to this. And I put the headphone, the, put the cans on, and it was Obladi Oblada. And I couldn't believe what I heard. And just the joy I felt from the track and all of the tones of the instruments. And I had played a li- like maybe just a couple years of piano and the, the jangly bang on the piano at the beginning. And just how that affected me in such a strong way and and then you realize wait there's albums of this stuff and (laughs) buying the blue album and sitting with that that's how I got into the Beatles first really the the 1967 to 1970 the blue album collection so hearing things like Old Brown Shoe that would have been in my first 20 Beatles songs whatever is 24 on there and being like wow this they are older and the beards and <laughs> the art and the, the mystery of England. It opened the door and really changed my life in such a profound way where I find them such an interesting band where everybody loves them. Kids love them. Women love them. Men love them. Any, I mean, however you identify, any person loves them. And and the older I get, the it doesn't get it doesn't lose its flavor. Yeah. The music sounds as if it could have been made today. And the stories behind the Beatles themselves, those four guys, they're so interesting. The way they saw the world, their, the level of intelligence and humor and everything they put in. Four unbelievable characters that are one part of a monster of a machine. Yeah, it's exciting, and there's not many things in this life that do that, and they did that, and they made the world happy, and they continued to make it happy, and that's why, you know, I'm people, sometimes I'm a little apologetic where, 
you guys hear this? Did you ever hear this McCartney song or maybe an obsession? But it's all pure joy. So I say dig in, enjoy it, listen to the records. How lucky are we to have all this music? I don't know if that's a good story or memory. That's beautiful, Ryan. That's wonderful. But that's I love that's that. how I feel about it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And you've been so wonderful and supportive of yesterday and today. And we really appreciate that. So everybody of course. who hasn't yet, and you probably have by this point, but check out Ryan's Take It Away podcast that he does with his partner, Chris Mercer. Mercer man, and yeah. that is a wonderful show. And and uh, Ryan, you're a wonderful, wonderful guy. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Paul. Appreciate you. My co-host on now hear this, which you should check out. Leave a review, yeah. even if it's a bad one. I'd like the feedback. <laughs> and uh, we'll leave all the plugs there, and 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 head back to the show. Thanks, Paul. of intermission part two where you been Nate? you're not that temple again aren't you and as bad as your sister coming home from work all hours and all colors all right we're back for our next segment james and i are gonna go ahead and dust off our interview hats and go ahead and slide into our uh interview pants our interview pants we're gonna put those on and then we're gonna put interview shirts on but I'm going to not put mine on because I've shaved my interview logo into my chest. <laughs> Boy, we're lost in the weeds here. <laughs> uh, we're going to interview Dad is what I'm getting at. We're going to talk to Dad a little bit. <laughs> uh, hold on. Let me get my interview outfit on. Hold on. <laughs> um, Dad, we're going to interview you. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, so we've divided these into we're just about questions about the four former Beatles, and then we're gonna each take one. Start with Pete Best, please. <laughs> so we're gonna start with uh, with John Lennon, as Paul said, the cutest one, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you grew up not very far from New York City. You were, uh, you know, a ferry boat away. Let's just say in the seventies, and as we've heard on the show, you've had. More than one adventure into the city, in and around the Dakota building and assorted other Lennon staples. What were your closest run-ins to the Lennons? Sure. Well, we used to go to his Bank Street apartment. Obviously, I'd never met him there. I never met anyone else there that was of any fame. But it was interesting to go there around the time of some time in New York City and just hang out and wait. More like a fan, just waiting to see you know, Lennon or Yoko or someone. One of the most times that I got real close was around the holidays, hanging out with uh, my friends Mike and Chuck, seeing Yoko come out of the Dakota building. John probably was upstairs, and I know my friend said, Happy New Year or Happy Christmas or Happy New Year, I forget. Yoko, and she just smiled. That was probably as close as I ever got. I did want to see him during the Elton John concert at Central Park. I thought he was going to be there, and he didn't show up. Instead, you just got to see an Elton John concert. (laughs) Rats. Um, And um, I guess there was another time that you were a little baby, Paul, and we went to New York, and I bought a hot dog in Central Park around 72nd Street, and I was eating it right around the Dakota, and Mom had one, and you were in the stroller. And Yoko came out with Sean. Hmm. 
But that was about as close as I ever got. You know, I wish to have seen him in concert. I had friends in high school that seen him at the one-to-one show, and you know, they brought their one of them brought his tambourine that he got from Lennon. They were tossing him into the audience or something. Yeah. Wow. Um, so uh, you know, never seen him. I wish I did. You did meet Cynthia Lennon at a uh, at a fest in the mid nineties. I did. Uh, <laughs> uh, care to tell us a little bit about? Uh, what she was like? Sure. It was in Philadelphia, and this was in the, I thought it was in the late 80s, perhaps. She was a very nice person. She was very quiet, very reserved. Um, I asked her what her favorite song was, Beatles song, which I thought was a stupid thing to ask. <laughs> <laughs> What'd she say? I, you know, to be honest with you, I forgot. Um, what? You don't remember? <laughs> Yesterday. She never cared for John's stuff. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a very short, brief meeting, but my quick memory of it was she was really nice. She was joking around. I was with my friend Chuck. She was joking around with him, and we took pictures with her, and that was about it. I think I even asked him, where's Julian? Which was another stupid question. (laughs) As if that's his mother, you know? Uh, Yeah. Well, if you knew then what you know now after putting together this whole podcast, what would you have asked her? Is there anything in particular that comes to mind? It's a funny thing, you know, not knowing these people, you know, I I just know them through their fame, really. But knowing Mm -hmm. them as people, probably was she involved in any of the songs that the Beatles recorded? Yeah. Hmm. Was she involved in any of the ideas? Was there anything more positive, you know, prior to 68, you know, that he or she actually contributed to. That would have been interesting for me. I know she used to sing around the house from her books where she talked about her singing around the house and and things of that nature. And I know later on after Lennon passed away, you know, she recorded a few things. But I, I would have been interested in that. I would have been interested in, you know, what did she really think of India? Did she like the food? What did she eat? You know, I, I mean, basic things. You know? <laughs> yeah. 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 I love Indian food, so I would have, I would have had a nice conversation with her. <laughs> Those are some definitely excellent questions. So you had also, uh, you had seen Julian Lennon mm-hmm. in, uh, in kind of his heyday. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything you could tell us a bit about that show? What kind of fans were there? Were they Julian fans? Because it was sure. a pop star in his own right. Were they Julian fans, John fans, Beatle fans? Yeah, well, it was a mixture. It was the Velat tour. And, uh, the big I saw one. Him in, the big one, yeah. I saw him in Philadelphia. And, you know, he had like 13-year-old kids, you know, that since the album was pushed on MTV quite a bit. And uh, since the tunes were happy-go-lucky, five verses, <laughs> uh, they were very easy to hum. Uh, there was a lot of fans there that obviously were not alive when the Beatles were around. But then you had people like me that were, you know, Beatle fans and wanted to see, you know, John Lennon's kid. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I really liked the album for a lot. I th- thought that was his, you know, obviously it was his best recorded work. There's been a couple after that. Photograph Smile is great, yeah, too. but that's a good one. Yeah, I do like the lot a lot. But, yeah, it was a good show. I don't remember too much more of it other than we had pretty decent seats. I know Julian was singing at the mic like if he was Robert Plant, 
um, which was fine. (laughs) But I was hoping he would be more of a, you know, playing a guitar or an instrument or something like that. I remember that going through my mind. Uh, But it was okay, you know. I was there too, kind of. I was embryonically there, right? (laughs) This is true. (laughs) I was gestating. (laughs) Paul's status, gestation. Um, (laughs) Any tunes that he played that come to mind? Any surprising songs or covers or anything like that? Sure. The most favorite song that I've seen him play there was Day Tripper because, Ah. you know, he sounded like his dad and it was neat to hear him sing it. Afterwards, how enthralled was the audience? Would you call it a Velazza rapture? <laughs> oh. oh, and James with the slam dunk to end that one. <laughs> I am speechless. <laughs> that is getting onto his interview bicycle to get away from here. <laughs> and I'm getting into my interview go kart and chasing him. It's fine. It's much too late for goodbyes, James. Well, we're gonna move on. <laughs> we're gonna move on to George Harrison now. George, you've had some closer run-ins with and we heard a little bit about you going to see the dark horse tour Mm. with your friends at that time i was wondering Mm -hmm. you know we heard about what it was like when you guys were there i was wondering when did you hear that the tickets were on sale did you think you weren't going to be able to get tickets were you able to get them at the last minute do you have any special memories of actually getting ready to go to that show and maybe the trek over because that's sometimes that's the most fun part of concerts the music is obviously the attraction but the to me it's part of like the camaraderie of going with people sure as far as the concert tickets are concerned i was very blessed to have a couple of good friends who waited in line because for whatever reason i didn't go to wait in line for these tickets and memory serves me correctly they waited in line for either six hours or they stayed overnight and when i say they stayed overnight they bought the tickets in a place called woodbridge center in woodbridge new jersey and there was a ticketron selling the tickets ans store which was a clothing store and they had a ticketron at ans and they hung out and camped out and got the tickets and you know that was really nice of them um, yeah because I couldn't go with them that day for whatever reason. I really don't remember the whole circumstance behind it, but I know my friend Joe and Mike, they bought tickets for me. You got some good friends there. Yeah. That did that for yeah. you. <laughs> and the funny thing is, Joe never went. <laughs> so we have an unused ticket. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, <laughs> Hare Krishna to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and as far as going to the show... Memories fade. I don't recall too much. You know, we went by train. It was an afternoon show, which was kind of surprising. I think it was at four o'clock the show started. So I remember it being packed and rowdy. 
<laughs> I've never felt comfortable in an afternoon show. I always feel like it's much later than it is, and then I get outside and it's like still light out. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now you're gonna have a a big George run in later in the special, which you detail quite a bit. But I was wondering if you can give our listeners a little teaser of what may be coming up in the in the eighties. Sure. With uh, your run in with George. Sure. I've been very blessed to have a job or have my wife have a job where she would be going to London quite a bit. So I used to piggyback onto those trips or I used to go and work in London for a little while. So I used to take trains or in this case, we rented a car and I wanted to go and see where George lived. And this was right around the time of cloud nine, I think, right? Yeah, I think he just released it. And I wanted to go to that town. The next day I was going to Liverpool again to see, you know, some of the sights there. But I wanted to go to Henley. I, I figured I was going to Bath anyway, which was a uh, a town outside of Henley. And uh, I took pictures of the gate. You know, I found this place. I, I thought it was kind of odd that it was off of a main road. And I found the place. <laughs> and uh, I was going back to the car. And uh, your mom... My wife, she uh, she said, oh, do you want to walk up the street? So I said, yeah, sure. You know, I don't, you know, it'd be fun. And uh, walking up the street was probably the best thing I ever did. <laughs> because uh, George happened to be there. And uh, it was wow. pretty much a, a one-on-one. That's amazing. I'll leave the rest for an 80s episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Spent an afternoon with him. That's awesome. Very, very cool. Have my love. It fits you like a glove. We'll skip right along to uh, Paul McCartney over here. So we'll be hearing uh, your Wings 76 tour recordings in some upcoming episodes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And without spoiling too much, can you give us some highlights of seeing Wings or the Wings Over America tour? Sure. Yeah, I remember seeing Wings. I remember getting tickets. I remember my friends getting me tickets. I was in college at the time. I've seen most of the shows. I, I think I've seen... Paul and Wings about four or five times in the tri-state area and a couple times at the Spectrum, a couple times at uh, Madison Square Garden, Nassau Coliseum. So it was a lot of fun. Uh, The memories all blend in. (laughs) (laughs) But I had real good seats for a couple of those shows, very good seats. I have a lot of good silent film footage. I have a lot of good audio that I made, uh, a lot better than the uh, George Harrison shows. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you had learned something since then. <laughs> <laughs> was Speed of Sound, uh, were you excited by that at the time? Yeah, actually, um, that was very exciting because that was, you know, an album that was released during a tour. And I'm like, wow, this is great. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I mean, Beware My Love, I thought was one of the best things I ever heard by him, you know, besides the unreleased Soily. So, mm-hmm. you know, those type of things were fantastic, you know. At that time, we didn't hang out and wait for Paul, but, you know, we did take a lot of still photographs on and around the garden at the time, the marquee and everything. Did you find his uh, tour 
caravan with the the wings over America kind of tractor trailers and stuff? Uh, to be honest with you, I don't really remember. We went to the show. You know, I bought so much stuff. <laughs> uh, like the Harrison show, I wound up buying almost anything I can find that was Paul McCartney and wings. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, between that and carrying all this other junk. <laughs> It was rather interesting. The uh, single junk. You know, so. <laughs> of the four Beatles, mm. you've had the most run-ins with Paul. Uh, Correct. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the the Broad Street premiere that? Uh, oh, sure. That happened. Yeah. Well, I used to belong to the Wings Fun Club, and then it became the Paul McCartney Fan Club. And from the Wings Fun, no longer fun. It is <laughs> no longer fun. And from the Fan Club, you know, I received a lot of different offers. And one of them was uh, a letter in the mail from MPL. At 48 hours, we'll be covering the premiere of Give My Regard to Broad Street in New York. And would I like to attend? And I said, yeah, sure. I didn't realize like to attend meant hang outside. (laughs) (laughs) So, but that was fine. I went with my friends and, you know, we hung outside and I brought a camera. And that was the first time... Aside from filming McCartney, that was the first time I ever took a still photograph of Paul when he got out of the uh, limo with Linda going (laughs) into Broad Street. Yeah. Wow. So they mobilized the fan base to come and cheer him on, basically. And beware his love. beware his (laughs) love. Beware that man's love. (laughs) One of the greatest PR people around, Paul McCartney. (laughs) And then eight years later, Mm. you had another encounter with the guy in New York City. Can you tease that one just a little bit? Oh, that was the one with the hurricane hitting New York. <laughs> Stay out of New York. The night after the uh, Ed Sullivan performance. Ed Sullivan, right before the Ed Sullivan show, yeah. Yeah, that was in December. I'll never forget it. I think it was 92. Or, yeah, yep. I think it was 92 or 91. And Paul was playing there. And um, I remember taking photographs of... I, I went on a... Uh, I figured, okay, I'll turn it into a sales call, so... <laughs> <laughs> Which you can say now with so many years removed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, writing it off on your taxes. <laughs> so Beetle. what happened was is I, I waited for Paul and he was supposed to hit into the Ed Sullivan Theater and and he did and I took a couple of pictures. He was wearing the red jacket like in hope of deliverance and you know, I took some photographs of him and, you know, got the wave and the whole bit and thought, oh, great. I was very excited about that. I thought it was fantastic. And then I just hung out. Everybody cleared out of that side street near the Roseland Ballroom and the Ed Sullivan Theater, that side street. And I just hung out there. I was with two other people. They happened to be just hanging there. And and the MTV uh, truck was there, too. And long story short, no one else is there. I'm standing there, and all of a sudden, coming out of the door is Paul McCartney. I'm like, wow. <laughs> so I said, Paul, come here. So I had my... <laughs> so he said, okay. And he held up his finger, and he goes, just wait a minute. And he went inside the MTV truck. I guess he was checking something with sound, or I don't know, maybe doing blow. I have no idea. And then he came, he came out. And... Um, then he he came up to me, and I gave him a pen, and I says, hey, man, can I have a signature? He signed my business card and took a picture and told him, have a good show, break a leg. And he said, hey, man, here's some cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> but he was nice, you know. I mean, for the 
I don't know, five minutes, three minutes that I'm that I talked with him. You know, he was a nice guy. Well, yeah. I'm disappointed you didn't make a give my regards to side street joke. Uh, <laughs> that but, would have been, uh, that would have been great. I was more nervous because <laughs> there was a hurricane moving in at that moment in the New York area. <laughs> so how many times have you seen McCartney? I need to hear a count. Let's go. Yeah, I, I was thinking about it. I mean, him in concert, aside from just seeing him yeah. uh, walking around, I would think somewhere around 24 or 28 times yeah and you've had your camera in tow at almost all of these (laughs) yeah it it became harder and harder to bring a camera into some of the venues in the 90s in the middle to late 90s because you know obviously they didn't want taking pictures and you know i remember the fun club i was able to get tickets in giant stadium uh you went with me paul and Mm -hmm. i never had you know front row at a stadium concert before (laughs) i'm usually the guy up in the high bleachers yeah (laughs) And so I was able to sneak in a telephoto zoom lens and and uh, my Nikon FG and you know I took some fantastic shots of that show and many other shows too. What are the top three tours that you went to with McCartney? Any favorite individual shows in there as well? well? The biggest ones were Wings, obviously. I, I I enjoyed it because it was a band or sort of a band more so than say his later shows. I never saw him in the '79 era, but. Um, I went to a rehearsal once. That's a different story. Uh, I had front row for a rehearsal for Paul McCartney, and that was fantastic. That was a good show. It was surprising to me because he was testing Beatle numbers that I'd never heard before, like things we said today and things like yeah. that. All in rehearsal, very intimate type of thing. But, you know, I would say as far as a major concert is concerned, in my opinion, it would be Wings. Later on, it was the 2004 show because he did sh- songs there that I never thought I'd hear him sing. Oh, yeah. That's when he did Too Many People for the first time. Was it 2004? Yeah. I, I, was, I yeah. think I was with... Yeah, okay. yeah I, I, went, I, I went with you for that one, yeah. I think I saw him at the same show. I think I was mentioning... I went there two or three times. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was a, a good show. <laughs> he had the blue shirt for that one. Ah, uh, we remember things. <laughs> We're going to move on to Ringo Starr. Now, Ringo was elusive in terms of North American appearances for a good long while prior to the All-Star Band tours. And then you couldn't beat Ringo away with a stick. <laughs> not that I'm suggesting you beat Ringo with a stick. I'm warning you with peace and love not to beat him with a stick. Uh, I hear, though, that you did actually see him prior to these All-Star Band appearances. Not all that much prior, but a little bit prior. Do you want to tell us a little bit about a certain 4th of July Ringo run-in? Oh, in Washington, D.C., far away. (laughs) That was interesting. It's not as memorable. It's only as memorable to me because of the amount of people that were there and the heat and everything else. I mean, you couldn't really see much on the stage. But my favorite memory of Ringo really was Atlantic City, seeing him back in 1989. 
for the first time, him actually posing for a picture for me. Yeah. We were yelling for Ringo, and he, my friends and I, uh, Frank and Chuck, and he came out, and I had my really nice Nikon, and this is long before cell phones, and, uh, you know, I took some really cool photographs of him and Barbara and Levon Helm and Billy Preston and things of that nature and backstage yeah. at the show, hmm. which was great. And another favorite memory, you know, while I'm on the subject of it, is... Uh, Going to see Ringo when he had his third all-star band. I think it was his third with uh, Randy Bachman. Yeah. And I actually had really good seats for that. Matter of fact, my seat was right next to David Fishoff's seat, which was oh, David wow. was, the, was the promoter of yeah. the show. <laughs> for many, many years. He worked with Ringo for a long time. And I remember, uh, you know, like clapping along to some song. I forgot what it was. And David comes over to me and he says, hey, how do you like the show? <laughs> and I said, I said, oh, it's great. I'd like to see more Ringo, though. <laughs> you know, funny. we're seeing Randy Bachman, which is fine. I like Randy Bachman, but, you know, I was like, oh, do more Ringo. <laughs> you know, we, and then he said, oh, well, what do you want to hear him sing? You know, and things like that. It was really, really a fun moment. Dad went, rack my brain. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how Dad has created the set list for every Ringo <laughs> song in, uh, in the All-Star Band. And dancing with Lee Starkey at uh, Radio City was also a good memory. So, uh, yeah, there was a lot wow. of good R Ringo memories I have. We're being thrown in the van. I'm not sure. Were you there, Paul? An unmarked van and taken away. There was an unmarked <laughs> van. van. And I was never thrown in a van with you, Dad. Jack Bruce, Dave Edmonds. The guy from the police, uh, they're trying to throw me in the van. It, it was a good time. <laughs> was that the time when Jack Bruce gave me the autograph? Or no, that, that a different tour? that was a different tour. I've seen Ringo probably okay. as much as McCartney, it seems. Yeah, well, we had a run-in <laughs> with Klaus Vorman on the streets of New York when we, outside of a Ringo show, Ringo mm. was my first concert, 92. I was so excited at the Garden State Art Center. Now, I guess, the, the, I guess it's the PNC Bank Art Center. And those shows, you know, they're always fun. They're always memorable for the different artists that he brings on stage. But he does tend sure. to stick to, let's call them familiar hits. He does. I mean, with the exception of like, I think when I saw him in 2012, he played Wings. If I had the Wings of an Eagle or whatever, right? He did, right, right. Because right. yeah, he had redone that song, but... Mm. To wrap up the Ringo portion, when the 1989 tour, that first all-star band tour was announced, mm? I imagine you were excited, but I wonder, what did you... I was with you. <laughs> what did you think that show was going to be when you heard it was announced? What were your expectations going into the show, and what were your sure. impressions coming out of it? I heard it was going to be announced because I have a friend uh, who now is on Sirius XM Beatles channel was taking photographs at the press conference of Ringo and he brought it to uh, his friend's attention and he, you know tell Wayne so I heard about it through that and I heard about the set list he was going to do so the anticipation was is you guys went on a family vacation with us and I made a CD of all the songs that <laughs> I wanted to hear him sing. Yeah. <laughs> so I was expecting when I got back from vacation, when I went to see Ringo, he's going to play those songs, which, would have, which was great. It was great to know Ringo was back out there singing. The last time anyone has ever heard him sing Photograph or whatever was on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. And that was in the 80s, so uh, early 80s. 
So th this was fantastic to hear him actually sing Photograph. His voice was fantastic. It, it was a very good show. Half of the E Street band was there. Actually, Bruce Springsteen came on stage one evening with John Candy. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> I'll never forget that. That was over at Garden State Arts Center. Yeah. leave this we're gonna i'm gonna take off my interview pants because it's dinner time and i that's a that's an in-joke and um i am going to introduce our next uh, listener memories segment now we have another special guest here this special guest is co-founder with matt graining of bongo comics bill morrison oh, who was the illustrator of the apple official yellow submarine comic book a few years ago and Bill wow. is going to join us to share some favorite Beatle memories of his. That's awesome. End of part two. My name is Bill Morrison, and I am a comic book artist and writer. I adapted the Beatles' Yellow Submarine for a graphic novel, which came out in 2018 from Titan Comics. Uh, I grew up in a what I would call a Beatles household. I am uh, one of six children that my parents had, and uh, I'm kind of right in the middle. So I had uh, two older sisters and an older brother. And my older brother and um, one of my older sisters were huge Beatles fans. And uh, so we had Beatles music playing pretty much constantly in my house when I was little. And um, I remember actually that my first, my very first record that I ever owned was sort of a Beatles album. It was Alvin and the Chipmunks sing the Beatles hits. So not really a Beatles album, but pretty close. Kind of like the Beatles sped up. Just the voices though, everything else was normal. Um, anyway, uh, I remember seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan the first time and the second time. And uh, I remember my father took my older uh, brother and sister to the drive-in to see A Hard Day's Night. So I remember seeing that on the very big screen um, when it first came out. But... Uh, I was in the back of our station wagon in my pajamas and with a, a pillow in case I got bored um, <laughs> and fell asleep, which I did. Um, I was really little, so you can't hold that against me. Um, one story that I remember is um, it didn't really happen to me. It was my, my sister Janice was, um, as I mentioned, a big Beatles fan, and she got tickets to see the Beatles at Olympia Stadium in Detroit, uh, which is where we grew up. And uh, she wasn't old enough to drive, so my dad drove her and a couple of her friends, and he waited out in the parking lot for them to you know, get done seeing the show. 
And the way my sister explained it, she said, you know, back then, concerts weren't really that long. And she said they were, they were like maybe four or five opening acts. And then the Beatles came out, and all the opening acts only played a couple of songs. And then the Beatles came out, and she said they only played for like 20 minutes. And I don't know if that's true, but um, apparently, you know, it was not a lot. It wasn't like a, a two and a half hour show like we would have today. Um, so anyway, my dad was out in the parking lot just waiting. And uh, my dad smoked back then. So he got out of the car and he was having a cigarette after, you know, after a pretty long while. And um he was just, you know, just standing there uh, outside the stadium. And suddenly he was, I guess he was kind of close enough to the building that he noticed a big garage door suddenly uh, rolling up. It was like one of those big rolling kind of corrugated garage doors um, or entrance doors. And so this big door rolls up and this big black limousine starts to pull out. And so my dad's standing there just watching the limousine and just checking it out. And suddenly he hears this sort of din coming from around the corner of the stadium. And, you know, it sounded like the kids had gotten out and, you know, there was just a lot of sort of crowd noise. And as this group of kids rounded the corner and came into view, he said, they spotted the limousine like you know a couple of the kids kind of in the front of this crowd spotted the limousine one of them yelled out it's the beatles and suddenly they there was just a stampede and the kids just started rushing towards the limousine and my dad was directly between this herd of kids and the beatles um and they were they were just charging right at him, and there was uh, one of these you know big parking lot lamp posts with a big cement base, one of those kind of trapezoidal cement bases. And my dad tossed his cigarette down. He jumped up on that base, and he said, "Just in time, as this stampede of kids, this herd of kids, just." rushed past him. He said he would have been trampled um, had it not been for that lamppost. And he said these kids just ran and chased that limousine as far as you know they could until they built up speed and took off and they couldn't chase it anymore. Um, and then he had to try to find my sister in this big crowd of kids. Um, but that's my Beatles story. Um, I wish I'd been there. It, uh, it would have been fun to watch my dad hopping up on that lamppost. Our next special guest is from the wonderful Something About the Beatles podcast, Mr. Robert Rodriguez. Nice. And Robert is a yeah. uh, Beatles author. He has contributed uh, some wonderful books to the Beatles historiography canon. Uh, solo in the 70s, Fab Four FAQ, I want to say. I'm doing this from memory. I apologize, Robert. And he wrote a book on Revolver as well. So 
Anyway, Robert was a big inspiration to me just in podcasting, and we're gonna we're gonna hear from him a special Beatles memory. Thank you. Excellent. Cool. For as long as I've been writing Beatle books, I've gotten asked by people, did you ever talk to Paul? Did you ever talk to Ringo? Did you interview them for your books? And the answer to that is no. And that is by design, because I've seen enough recent interviews, and when I say recent, I mean anything from the 1990s onward, to recognize the fact that anything I'd really want to get out of them, they're not going to have an answer to, or it's not going to be the right answer. It's not going to be an accurate answer, because these guys are pros. They've got their stories down. They've got their Beatle lore down. It's very rare when you can come at them from some kind of angle that they're going to give you an honest answer to a question that nobody's ever asked them before. And a lot of what does come out of them is pure myth. So, to my way of thinking, a waste of time to try to get anything of value out of them, especially for the kind of books that I do, which are about contextualizing and getting the story right, the history right, going where the history leads you, that sort of thing. Because honestly, Paul and Ringo are going to lead you astray, and they're not going to give you anything insightful. And to get the real kind of access that might even remotely make something like that possible, you really got to be somebody big in the world that is of use to them. Somebody from no less than a Rolling Stone or something like that, that they know is a reliable platform for them. And I'm not that person. I haven't got that. Despite what you might think of something about the Beatles, it's really a niche thing, ultimately. So they're not going to pay me any mind. So that being said... I've not sat them down or even tried to get them for an interview, but if the opportunity presents itself to cross paths with them, just to say hi or something like that, I'm not averse to acting on that. And so it was in 2015, I've got somebody very close to me that was connected to Lollapalooza, an insider. And the opportunity availed itself when Paul was passing through Chicago in 2015. Hey, you want to come down and see the sound check? Now, the sound check was on the Thursday night prior to the show opening on Friday. So, there's nobody there other than the skeleton crew preparing things for the next day when the whole festival opens. So, you're talking about a real exclusive thing. And, of course, I jumped at it. So, I get there to Grand Park, and, of course, everything's set up. You have to go through all kinds of layers of things just to get in there. But because I had an in, I was able to do that. Basically, you just find yourself a seat and sit back, no audience there, maybe a handful of people that might also know somebody, and there's Paul with his band on stage in 2015. This was July 2015, and they're just very casually running through songs that they may or may not play in the next day's set. And more and more as I'm sitting there watching this, I'm thinking, this is like being a Twickenham. Because they're just running through songs they like and know. And this was at the end of July. And it was one of those months where there was a blue moon. Which, if you don't know, that just means a full moon at both ends of the month. Occurring in the same month. And they started the sound check early enough that it was full daylight out. But now we're a couple hours plus into it. And the sun has gone down. And the full moon is rising to the east over Lake Michigan. It is a beautiful sight and something I will never, ever forget for the rest of my days. And they're taking note of it. They're on stage, it's gotten dark, and the moon comes up. And all of a sudden, they start playing Blue Moon. This is exactly like being at Twickenham, except it's outdoors, 
and you're there as part of this private audience. And at some point, Paul's on the piano, and I see, I, I know Brian and uh, Rusty, I think, are the guitar players with him. They gather around and they're working through the chords and the arrangement, and like, no, it goes like this, da da da. They're working through this thing. And I was at that moment completely aware of how privileged a position I was in. It's like, as a fan, as a Beatle fan, to be in that place with very few people. I got into this whole thing as a fan and writing the book that I wish somebody had written and nobody did. And that led to more books that led to a podcast that led to public speaking, all this other stuff. So at heart, I'm just a fan. I'm just somebody that got seduced by their music at an early age. And here I am watching them run through songs in this very private setting. So I was very aware in the moments like, oh my God, this is amazing. So on the off chance, there was no guarantees of anything, but I thought, you know what? just in case by some random accident I do find myself in the same space as Paul I don't want to be a hanger on asking something from him whether it's a handshake or an autograph or anything like that I don't want to be a taker I'll be a giver and so for that I came with a copy of my revolver book and I figured if there was an opportunity I would see if I could get it to him and this is something that I do whenever there's an opportunity. If I meet somebody or I'm at some sort of occasion or event, like when um, Eric Idle came to town for his book tour a couple years ago, and I brought a copy of one of my books that actually had a discussion in there about Ruddles and Holy Grail and that sort of thing. So, And I left a book through his handler. So in this case, I've got my revolver book, and once they wind down, it's quite dark and quite late, probably about three hours in, I work my way to the backstage area. And again, this is not a normal event, folks. This is private. This is not open to public at all. And so I just figure, you know, I'll see how far I can get. And I just kind of follow the train of important-looking people to literally the backstage. It's behind the stage area. And lo and behold, there's Paul. There he is, 20 feet, 15 feet, 10 feet away from me. And I'm just holding back. I'm not saying anything. I'm kind of smiling. I'm just kind of looking his way and not wanting to draw attention to myself till an opportunity opens. And I got the revolver book in my hand. All of a sudden, this guy I take note of, big burly bodyguard. I swear his accent seemed to be Scottish, and I think he was named Mike. I can't swear to that. Other people might know more than me. But he's at Paul's shoulder, and all of a sudden he fixes his eyes on me and just yells from the 10 feet distant, That's it! Stop right there and turn right around and get the out of here. That was as close as I got. And I'm like, you know, I'm just holding the book up. It's like, well, wait, I've got this for Paul. I'll just, I'll set it down here. I'll leave. No, no uncertain terms. He made it known that if I didn't immediately beat a hasty retreat, that was it. And grievous bodily harm might fall upon me. And I could see, yeah, I locked eyes with Paul. And he's, you know, he's Paul. He's just, you know, gives you that McCartney look you've seen a million times. A shrug like at the end of the My Brave Face video. <laughs> so that's as close as I get. No words exchanged. I didn't get to put the book anywhere because there was nowhere to put it. And I just kind of backed off and that was that. Anyway, even despite all that, even despite the unsuccess of that mission I had in mind, the whole thing was just amazing. And it's something that will stay with me forever. Again, I've never sat down with these guys. I've never talked with them. I've been in the same room with Yoko and Sean, pretty close to them, but you have to be somebody really accredited to get access. They don't just share it with anybody. But that was my story. That's what happened. And uh, thanks for asking. 
Hey guys, it's Luke Sinclair from Denver. Wanted to send in my Beatle-related memory. My dad took me on a road trip uh, around the Colorado Rockies in 2003 when I was 13. And we had this 1995 Bronco. We took the back seat out. So he had this nice big bed in the back. And so he drove and I got to lay in the back. Um, I'd play, I'd just gotten a bass. So I was playing bass a lot and had my CDs and my little portable CD player and headphones and everything. So as we're driving through the Rockies, and it's March, so it's really snowy, and going through precarious roads, I remember just laying in the back, and I had the White Album on, just repeat. Uh, For some reason, that was the album of the moment for me. And just had it going and going, and that's when it became actually my all-time favorite album, still is, and to this day, I find it hard to go on a road trip and not listen to the White Album. Every time I listen to it, it always I can picture in my head us driving around the Rockies, going up to Dinosaur National Monument and down to Durango and stuff like that. Uh, and that that for me is my favorite Beatles memory, just because it is so visceral, and uh, I can so picture everything that went along with that album. And plus, I mean, what a perfect album to do that with. Anyway, thanks guys. Have a good one. This is Dan Ely. Congratulations to Yesterday and Today podcast for their 100th anniversary podcast. In 1974, I was a 19-year-old teenager. Paul McCartney was my hero. And when he showed up uh, outside of Nashville uh, on a farm that became known as Junior's Farm, I found out the location. Not only did I meet him, but I ended up staying three weeks I recorded Paul and Wings rehearsing, and I gave Paul a shirt that he wore on his uh, birthday in 74 and 1976, and I also gave him a Rickenbacker bass guitar. Uh, Fortunately, I've been able to remain uh, friends with uh, Wings, with Denny Lane and Jeff Britton throughout the years, and it's been a great journey. Thank you very much, and happy anniversary. Wave? Don't like to. Oh, I'm Wave, shouldn't I? They expect it, don't they? Lovely lads and so natural. I mean, adoration hasn't gone to their heads one jot, has it? You know what I mean, success. Just so natural. And still the same as they was before they was. All right, so we're going to move to our last segment here. Uh, One that I've been looking forward to. We're going to play a very quick game here. It's called Unpopular Beatle Opinions. And we're each going to say... Actually, you know what? We could get through as many as we possibly can before they drag me off the stage. Get off them drums, as the story goes. Uh, So this is going to... You have to share an opinion that you're pretty sure others don't agree with in the Beatle fan community and what a community it is. So I'm going to go first, and I'm going to give you my unpopular Beatle opinion. My unpopular Beatle opinion is, I think Dark Horse is a great album, and I feel kind of sad when people (laughs) trash talk it all the time. Dad. Wow. All right. (laughs) Dad. Wow. I don't know how to follow up with that one, but um, I 
do like Dear Friend. Whoa. And Mary Had a Little Lamb. Well, that one. We knew about that one. We knew about that one. (laughs) Dear Friend, that is unpopular. I will say that. Bip-bop's a great song, and no one's going to tell me other ones. Back with the (laughs) bip-bop. Let's keep going. Uh, We're going back to Paul. Is it mine? I think song for song, Ringo Starr albums are way more enjoyable than John Lennon albums. Whoa! I think John Lennon is a much more talented songwriter. However, I think I get a lot more (laughs) enjoyment out of listening to a Ringo Starr album than listening to a John Lennon album. Wow. (laughs) Shocking. Shocking. There it is. Unpopular? Yes. (laughs) I like Absolute Infinity Universe. Oh, I, well, I do too. That's not unpopular. I, I'm, I'm gonna oh. join. I'm gonna join your population. <laughs> I'm sure, it is. <laughs> Move on fast is a sweet song. I love that song. You very rarely get '70s Lennon riff rock like that, like Led Zeppelin style stuff. Sure. All right. Fine. Whatever, <laughs> don't join me. It's okay. Whatever. I like the McCartney mullet. Wow. I, I do too. I do too. <laughs> <laughs> So is that popular? I don't know. I mean, I assumed it was unpopular. Most people did not like the mullet, but... All right, guys. Well, those are some good ones. I feel like it was my own game and I didn't have many, but that's okay. Um, Before we go, we're going to kick it to even more special guests. We have some more people joining us to share their Beatle memories with us. And, you know, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank everybody who did send their memories in. All the folks listening to the show is really appreciated. Really nice that you could be here with us and share this moment with us together. All right, now we're going to hear from another special guest, uh, another podcasting inspiration for me of the wonderful The Beatles Naked and uh, Swinging Through the Sixties podcast, Mr. Richard Buskin. Richard is joining nice. us to contribute. Thank a you. Favorite Beatle memory to the show, and we're gonna we're gonna let Richard take it away here. This is Richard Buskin, co-host of The Beatles Naked podcast. My Beatle memories go all the way back to 1963, and uh, you know many of them, some highlights being watching Hey Jude on the David Frost show with my parents, going to see Help at the London Pavilion with my mum sitting through two consecutive screenings. But one that really stands out for me was when they appeared on Big Night Out in February of 1964. They basically taped the show the day after they returned from the first US visit, you know, the first three appearances on The Ed Sullivan Show. And that was on a Sunday that they taped the show, the following Saturday it aired. And I remembered one particular comedy sketch that they did with the hosts Mike and Bernie Winters, where Mike and Bernie were supposed to be customs officials at Heathrow Airport when the Beatles arrived back from the States. And they come in with these suitcases and the customs officials order them to open them. And I remember my father saying, just before they open the cases, they're gonna be full of money. And he called it, he was right. When they opened the cases, money came pouring out. I remember seeing George's face, big grin. And uh, that really summarized the time. You know, people don't realize now, at that time, 
for the Beatles to make it in America, where almost all the other pop acts had failed, you know, was a huge thing. And the big thing was, my God, the money that they're going to be making. So that one was lodged in my memory, and I never saw it for about another two decades at least until I saw it on a video. And I was like, God, there it is. Memories intact. Our next uh, special guest here is a wonderful songwriter, producer, and multi-instrumentalist, Mr. Luther Russell, who was from the band The Free Wheelers and has been a successful uh, solo artist ever since. Luther has worked with many, many uh, famous and notable musicians and uh, he comes from a, uh, a long family history of people in the recording industry and he's a fan of the show. So Luther is going to contribute a Beatles memory for us here. Thank you. everybody it's great to be on this show my name's luther russell um you know a particular memory that stands out for me that's beetle related is i must have been about 10 years old and um i remember sitting uh <laughs> in a diner with my parents my little sister this is be about 1980, um, maybe towards the end of 1980, and uh, a song came over the over the uh, radio, and um, I turned to my parents and I said, "That's John Lennon," and uh, you kind of remember at the time, you know, he 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 had not been making music for about five years, so that was about half my life at that point, so. And right away, their first reaction was, nah, no, it's not. I said, no, listen, listen. And it was just like starting over. And um, by God, they said, oh, that is him. And we just kind of sat there listening. It was just so good to hear his voice. And it was um, just a really great moment, you know, the four of us sitting around this little table um, on Ventura Boulevard. So that's a kind of a special Beatles memory. And of course, um, you know, tragic things happened not long after, but it, 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 it didn't diminish that moment. So um, thanks for having me on the show and thanks for letting me share and uh, enjoyed yesterday and today podcast for a while now. Uh, all the episodes and um, here's to another hundred thank you I've been a Beatles fan as long as I can remember, which goes back to my formative years in the Bronx, where in my footsie pajamas, I watched them perform on Ed Sullivan and was dancing to their I Want to Hold Your Hand. In 2010, I was just as excited as I was back then to go to a Paul McCartney concert in City Field. I remember that there were rumors among those waiting with me on the line to get in that Ringo might appear at this one. I was skeptical about that, and of course that wound up not happening, but neither I nor anyone else cared. We watched Paul do his thing for about two and a half hours. We could not be more thrilled to see him. 
than if we were in Shea Stadium back in the 60s. It was one of the highlights of my life. Hey guys, my name is Michael Shawcross, and I'm a big fan of the show and all the other uh, Kaminsky shows out there. First off, I'd like to say happy 100th episode, and here's to many, many more. And this is a great idea, getting fan stories and memories together. The Beatles have been a great source of enjoyment in my life, and I know I'm not alone in that view. I have many great memories connected to their music, and it was hard just to pick one, so I narrowed it down to three memories. I'll rattle them off in quick succession, or maybe I'll rattle them off. Haha. Ha. Uh, starting off, my first memory would be my introduction to their music via the Beatles One and Yellow Submarine song track album from the late 90s. I remember um, classmates and school friends having those albums and had to get those albums and running home to my mom saying, we got to get the Yellow Submarine. <laughs> and, um, you know, eventually getting the album for uh, Christmas and was constantly playing the album on repeat and then slowly began collecting the rest of their albums and diving into their solo material and it led me to uh, many other artists and bands to explore that were similar and they still get great enjoyment from those two albums and you know, still put them on to this day. Uh, my second memory involves a local rock station that every Sunday from roughly about 10 a.m. to noon would play uh, their version of a morning Beatles show called Beatle Brunch. And I listened to that religiously in my teen years. Uh, unfortunately, it's been off the air for a number of years now, but I learned a lot of Beatles trivia from that show and got many hours of enjoyment from listening to the uh, music. And there's still certain songs that'll take me back to those simple days of Beatle Brunch on Sunday morning. My third and final memory is concert-related. I've been fortunate enough to see both Paul and Ringo perform live a few times each, all of which were great shows with fond memories. And uh, the first time that I saw Paul was uh, in 2002. And as the show was starting and Paul came out on stage, I just remember this lady that was seated in front of me jumping up and starting to scream at the top of her lungs and acting hysterical, um, yelling out, Paul, Paul, and singing along all out of tune. <laughs> and I remember just laughing about it and, you know, thinking it was so funny to see a grown woman acting this way. And I got an interesting sideshow to that concert with her. So <laughs> it still makes me chuckle to this day. Um, like I said earlier, there are so many great memories connected to the Beatles. Um, they've provided a soundtrack to my life, they've spawned fr friendships, they've helped me get through hard times in life, um, helped me connect with my parents, and so much more. So uh, maybe we can do this again for the 200th episode, keep sharing more memories. And guys, keep up the great work, I really love the show, and I'll end on uh, saying thanks Mo.
We'd like to thank you all for joining us for this Yay. special 100th episode of the Yesterday and Today podcast. We've got a lot of great stuff coming up in the show. Dad has been hard at work down in the Beetle Mines. Dad put on his Beetle pants, and he's been down in the Beetle Mines <laughs> working on his <laughs> working on his Beetle explorations. <laughs> and we're going to keep bringing it to you. Thank you, everybody. Hey, recommend the show to a friend, please. Down in the... Wait down in the i me mines oh okay okay <laughs> okay continue oh i think magical mystery <laughs> tour is a good movie i i do too hey i like give All my right. regards to broad street and i like that one too and i don't care who knows it <laughs> um please recommend the show to a friend rate review and subscribe on your pod catcher of choice we would, of course, love if you rated, reviewed, and subscribed on Apple Podcasts. Make sure it's five stars and just, uh, you know, those ratings really do help us. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. For all the support. Dad, would you like the Yo. last, the last, I've been the MC tonight, but I, would you like the last word on the 100th episode of Yesterday and Today podcast? The lot. <laughs> That's... <laughs> <laughs> was waiting for a like a Independence Day style speech there, and I got Velot. <laughs> Not a Velot of substance. Not a whole Velot going on. <laughs> Dad, what do you? What would you like to say to the people? Hello, people. <laughs> okay. All right. Bye, everybody. See. You. Thank you. Thank Bye. you for listening. Bye. Thanks for supporting the show. information or to contact the show visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast@gmail.com also visit at yesterdaypod on twitter and search yesterday and today podcast on facebook see you next time Guys, I just want to let you know, Eleanor is getting up for her nap in 20 minutes, so okay. I just want to make okay. sure we're timing the... I had written a lot for the Paul one, so we'll just... I just wanted to make sure that we kept our... Yeah, I got to go and eat, too. Beth, Mom is looking at me through the window outside. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, Sitting on the doorstep of the house again to fall
Uh, Luthor. Luthor. <laughs> I'm still talking about like Lex Luthor. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, What's the matter with you? Oh, I didn't want it to be over. <laughs> well, don't, don't, don't you, don't you have some records at home you can go home and play? Yes, but it isn't the same. Put on a record and look at the pictures. Okay. 